You're listening to the weekly podcast for Hillcrest Covenant Church. For more information, go to hillcrestcovenant.org. Good morning. How many, um, how many people here have had a chance to go over to the Johnson County Museum? Raise your hand if you've been over there. Maybe, maybe 15%. So the Johnson County Museum, I don't know how many years old it is now. It's, it's really, I think it's relatively new. Um, but it is, it has filled the old King Louis bowling alley up there on Metcalf. And um, that was kind of a unique, uh, architecturally unique building back in the day. And if you've been around for a long time, that's an old landmark, King Louis. I think any of the kids that grew up on the Kansas side maybe hung out there in high school kind of thing. Um, but then it probably went through the phase where it kind of looked hokey, like it was kind of a weird architectural thing from that period. But now they've remodeled and it's actually really gorgeous. Um, and it's uh, Johnson County Museum. I would really encourage anyone that has not been there to actually go over. So we went with my family a few months ago, and um, there were a few things that stuck out to me that I just wanted to mention. I mean, there's a lot there. There's a lot of cool stuff. Um, there's all of the obligatory Wizard of Oz uh, paraphernalia, but there's a lot of other good stuff too in terms of history. And one of the things that I was paying attention to uh, when I was there was having um, been, having lived on the Missouri side um, of the greater Kansas City area for about 27 years. I moved out here from Massachusetts, south of Boston area. Um, and I didn't know, when I moved out here, to me, this was just all Kansas City. And I didn't know there was an interstate rivalry. Like, I had no idea that existed. So I was on the Missouri side for 27 years, and then um, when I drove across the state line, we moved here about three years ago. With It was about two or three minutes, I'm gonna say about probably maybe four minutes, after we moved and I drove across the state line to Kansas, <clears throat> I, I said, I can't believe that anybody would live on the Missouri side. <laughs> and I, um, I just embraced it. I fully embraced it. And uh, so, but um, I wasn't aware of all that. But so as I was there at the Johnson County Museum and I'm looking and I'm trying to get a feel for the sort of the, um, the history and, and the spiritual history of this new community. Not that it's like five minutes away from where I lived, but strangely in a weird way, there, it's like you cross the state line and it's not just that the snow gets plowed on this side. There, there's also, there's like a different spiritual principality and, and it's like, I'm not super sensitive, but like I sense that. And so I, I'm looking in terms of the history and trying to understand some of the things and the events that have gone into the communities that we are now part of. We're here in Prairie Village, Kansas. If you're, you know, in California, people go, where are you from? A lot of times people just say Kansas City, right? Like this is, but we're in Prairie Village, Kansas. And of course it always confuses everybody. Are you Kansas City, Missouri, or Kansas, you know, that whole thing. But um, one of the big parts of the history, and you know, everybody's relatively familiar with this, some more than others, is the fact that during the Civil War period, it was the Kansas side that largely was very much opposed to slavery, right? That was fighting against uh, that side of things, whereas on the Missouri side, it was much more 
Um, you need to get the whole history with John Brown and all these different things. And then out when you go out to Lawrence, you know, all the streets are named um, after some of those battles. And you had, um, what was this guy's, Quantrill, and you know, all these different raiders and different things that happened. So as I looked at that, I said, well, you know, now that I'm, now that I have embraced Kansas, um, hey, all right, you know, I'm on the good side now. You know, we, we were opposed to slavery. You know, I said, maybe, you know, maybe a big part of the reason that, that Kansas has even been almost like economically more blessed in a lot of ways is because maybe that's some of our, our heritage is some of that righteous history. But then as you move forward and you get up to the development of the whole Johnson County area and it starts telling, the, the thing that's neat about the museum is it tells the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, and it tells the history of the development in the neighborhoods of some of the more affluent neighborhoods in the, on the suburbs, the outskirts of Kansas City. You know, it talks about Prairie Village and, and so on and so forth. And one of the other side, the other side of the coin that it talks about is how so many of the neighborhoods um, during that period actually within their covenants, within their community covenants, actually did not allow black or Jewish families into the neighborhoods. Like, it was actually written in the covenants. And, um, and it was not only on the Kansas side, but largely in affluent, economically upscale neighborhoods, there was actually, like, that stuff existed, you know, as recent as the 1950s. Um, but then my wife and I had lived in a, um, now it's, you know, an older neighborhood, but it was, we used to live in this neighborhood that was, it's like one of those little streets that shoots off of Blue River Road. And um, it used to, at one time, be you know a nicer little neighborhood. And we moved there. I mean, that was probably 17 years or so ago. And when we moved there, um, yeah, maybe 18 years ago, I was forced, because a small community, to join the neighborhood, uh, whatever you call it, board. And those things are the worst. Um, <laughs> like, politics is the worst. Like, the, the smaller, the lower it gets, the more, like, you, like, did we honestly just have a three-hour discussion about what kind of flowers we're going to plant at the entrance of the street? Like, let's just, but anyway, um, like, bureaucracy on steroids. Um, but uh, I was amazed that when we looked at the covenant, it still had the language. It actually still had the language of saying that, I don't remember it exactly, but it essentially said Jewish and black families are not allowed in the neighborhood. And I was like, you're kidding me. I mean, this is not the 1950s anymore, and that was still there. So that was one of the first things that we did was shamefully have to actually remove that from the, uh, the covenant. The reason I mention this is because uh, I want to talk today, the title of the message is Loving Our Neighbors, Following Jesus. And I think, uh, I think we would all agree that as a community, and, you know, standing up here looking out, not entirely, but we are largely uh, a Caucasian church. I mean, the majority here are Caucasian, which uh, technically, where does that word come from? That means that a large percentage of the people in the room at one time, their descendants trickle down out of the Caucasus mountain range. So that's where the word Caucasian comes from. I don't know. Little mountain range in between Russia and Turkey. And it actually goes all the way back to Noah and his children. But anyway. Um, and I think most of us would agree that as a community, as followers of Jesus, we want to be a people who, and when I say repent, I want to be careful because I'm not saying we have to repent for things that we didn't do or we're not guilty of, but we want to be people who walk away 
from that history, repent of that history, to be aware of that history, and to be a people who move into a much, much higher kingdom reality. I think we can all agree that that's just a brazen amen, right? And so I want to um, look this morning at very simple passage, the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's just such a simple lesson, um, but it's timeless, and we're going to tie it into some events and uh, just some things that are unfolding in our country, in our community, in our world, um, really throughout the world. So Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. Behold a lawyer, now this is not someone who specializes in, uh, you know, real estate law, someone who specializes in Torah law, right? A lawyer stood up to him um, and to put him to the test, that's Jesus. And he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, how would we as evangelicals respond if someone says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And most of us immediately, you know, we've been theologically trained. We know we're going to turn to something along the line, or we're going to say something along the line of John 3.16, right? God so loved the world, whosoever believe, that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish. So it's an issue of belief. It's an issue of affirmation, of confession. You have to believe in your heart. And so we would, you know, essentially make a statement that falls in the line of we're saved by grace through faith alone. Right, an evangelical statement of faith. And that's absolutely true. However, the reality is, is the scriptures consistently do emphasize the essential nature of the good fruit of faith. They, they emphasize our actions, our behavior. They emphasize the things that we do, not because that's what saves us, but sometimes the scriptures, including Jesus here, as we'll look at, they walk a very fine line to where it almost seems like it's saying that your works are important in terms of salvation. It's not saying that. To be clear, I'm fully evangelical. Um, but they do teach the fact that true faith, the type of faith that saves you, is not mere words, but that which produces fruit of good action. It actually impacts the way we live. If we claim to be followers of Jesus, but we don't have actions that reflect that, the point is we have deceived ourselves and we may not actually be in the faith. And so whether it be the book of James or, you know, you name it throughout the scriptures, there's this tension. And so sometimes as evangelicals, we react a little bit too harshly against discussions of the need for good works. But the bottom line is it's thoroughly scriptural. And Jesus himself really emphasizes this. So this guy goes, what should I do to inherit eternal life? What should I do to be saved? And so he responds and he says, what is written in the law? What's written in Torah? How do you read it? So he asks him the question and the man responds, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So I think with the first statement, he covers all of the bases. You shall love the Lord your God in terms of the confession of your heart, intellectual assent, you know, you acknowledge, you put your trust in, you have your faith in him, but it also impacts the rest of your life. So he, he deals with the whole broad range of the type of faith that saves us. But then he makes this statement and he says, and you shall love your neighbor a whole bunch. 
He doesn't say that. He actually says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Like as much as you care for yourself, that's the type of love that you should actually have for your neighbor, which is everyone else. Love God, love other human beings as much as you actually love yourself. That's a strong statement because it's easy just to read a verse like that and go, to be a Christian, I need to love God 100% and my neighbor's a solid 85. You know what I mean? Like, and that's enough. But he goes, no, you need to love your neighbors as much as you actually love yourself. Like, that's, that's a radical statement. Now, that, of course, is Jesus' interpretation of the summation, the essence of the entire Torah, which is pretty cool because, you know, the Torah can be confusing. You read through Deuteronomy, Leviticus, you're like, remind me again what a spotless you know, red heifer and its ashes and smearing it here. Like, how does that have to do with loving God? But he goes, look, like, don't get confused too much about the details. What it all really boils down to, you know, these, the five books of, of Torah of Moses, what it really boils down to, all the temple sacrifices and the incense and the burnt fat and the portion and the priests and, you know, like all of this confusing, say, boils down to this, love God and love other people wholeheartedly. You know, so that's helpful for those who struggle with portions of the Old Testament. And then he says this. Uh, Jesus said, you have answered correctly. Now look at this. Do this and you will live. In other words, do this and you will inherit eternal life. If you don't do this, the inference is you will not inherit eternal life. He's saying, if you want to truly be my follower, if you want to be a Christian, if you want to be someone who claims to be a Christ follower then this is what your life should look like. It should produce this type of, of action. And then, of course, the man, verse 29, he wants to justify himself. So, you know, the, the, um, the statement is, uh, when you throw a rock over the fence, it's the hit dog that yelps, right? And so, by the way, I'm about to throw some rocks over the fence. Um, but he wants to, he, he's, he's convicted, Right? And so he, he tries to justify himself. He's like, well, hold on, you know, I mean, I love a lot of people, but who? And so tr seeking to justify himself, he goes, but who's my neighbor? Like, when you say I have to love my neighbor as myself, let's just be clear here. So Jesus tells the story, of course, of this man who gets robbed, stripped, beaten. And then a priest comes by, and the priest sees him laying there. He just, the guy got robbed, beaten. He's laying there on the side of the road, probably unconscious or struggling, broken bones, whatever. And here's a holy man. So here is an upstanding member from Hillcrest Covenant. He walks by on the other side of the road, right? So Jesus is telling the story to say, like, one of your guys, one of the guys from your team comes by, and he walks on the other side of the road. And then comes a Levite. So I assume this is now someone who's actually uh, on the board of Hillcrest Covenant, very holy, some who are on staff, whatever, you know, like very holy person now, and they walk on the other side of the road. Um, and then you have a Samaritan, verse 33, but then a Samaritan. He journeyed, and he came to where he was. He saw the man. First of all, he had compassion. Now, in the Hebrew, compassion, it... Um, it, it conveys action. It's not just feelings. Oh, he had pity on. He actually was moved. And so he went to him and he bound up his wounds. He poured oil and wine. So he's talking about actions. He set him on his own animal and he brought him to an inn. He took care of him. So there's the phrase, he took care of him. He actually did what his compassion dictated. And the next day he 
gave the innkeeper some money, and he said, take care of him, whatever it ends up costing you above and beyond. I'm going to take care of it when I come back. And then finally, he says this. The, Jesus says, who, which one of these, between the two guys that are on your team, the holy men, versus the Samaritan, which one is your neighbor? And the man said, the one who showed him mercy, the one who cared for him, the one who did, who acted. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Imitate him. If you want to imitate me, if you want to inherit eternal life, then act like the Samaritan. Now, I think there's a picture. Throw up the picture of the Samaritan. Um, so here's, well, here's what's interesting. The Samaritans, who were they? In context, the Samaritans were the people who when the northern tribe of Israel, so at a certain point, the kingdom of Israel divided between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the Assyrians came in and invaded the northern kingdom of Israel, exported all of their people. Okay, so in modern terms, they ethnically cleansed the land. They ethnically cleansed it of the northern ten tribes of Israel, and they exported them, ironically, to Assyria. That's modern-day Syria, Iraq, northern Turkey, or eastern Turkey, that part of the world. So they exported them and moved them there. And then they sent back after a time a people who are now a mixture of some of the Jewish exiles who had mixed with the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and they were a mixed people. They sent them back, and they became, they moved back to Samaria, and they became known as the Samaritans. Now, see the picture there? That is the high priest today of the Samaritans. The Samaritans to this day, you're talking like, 2,500 years later, still live in Samaria. That's called the West Bank. And they, there's only about 300 of them. And they still, to this day, practice the ancient practices of Samaritanism. They don't even call it Judaism. Their religion is called Samaritanism. And they believe that they are preserving and protecting the original Hebrew religion. And that the modern Jews, the practice Judaism, they have kind of a distorted version of it. And this was a belief already by the first century. Okay, so by Jesus' day, there was already this people that lived in the land. By the time they came back from the Babylonian exile in the first century, so now the Jews have also been in the southern kingdom of Judah got exiled to Babylon. Seventy years later, they come back. You know, another couple hundred years later, we're in the first century, the time of Jesus. And there's this people that live up there, and they go, you guys worship down here in Jerusalem, but the real mountain of God is Mount Gerizim up here in, again, modern-day West Bank. And you guys have your Torah, but ours is actually a, a little bit of a different language. And when you look at this, what's so amazing is they still to this day use this very ancient form of Syriac or Aramaic Hebrew. They actually even have the Torah scroll, totally different form of Hebrew. I brought my tour guide, my Jewish-Israeli tour guide, and he was just blown away. He's like, I've, I knew these people existed. I've heard about it. But to see it, he's like, it's just... It's amazing. Like, I mean, it, his jaw was just dropped. But so there's a dynamic here. There's a social dynamic that I want to touch on, which is whenever, this is a very simple, common, very common human dynamic. Whenever someone feels threatened, either ethnically, demographically, or religiously by another people, it stirs up insecurity and it stirs up fear. And that fear often manifests and produces hatred. 
a, a form of hatred and prejudice. And so in the first century, you had this people that basically said, you Jews think you have the true religion, but we've preserved the real true religion. Your religion is, is distorted. It's a perversion. It's not the original. It's not the real thing. You guys worship at the wrong mountain. We're over here. And so there's kind of this religious and ethnic tension. And so then the Jews looked at them and go, but you guys are not even purebred Jews. You guys are a mixture with the pagans. And believe me, in ancient times, mixture was very bad because the essence of the Torah was don't mix with the behaviors, the patterns, the, the rituals of the pagans, and don't even intermarry with them. Because if you do, they will corrupt you. Like, this is throughout Torah. And so the idea of mixture was like, it was like a lack of holiness. It was be separate, right? That's the whole concept of holiness is separation. But it's cultural separation. It's not so much ethnic. But there was that prejudice. And the Samaritans represented a threat, a religious threat. And whether people understood or evaluated themselves psychologically what was going on, there was prejudice, you could say there was racism among the Jews. And so this was, this was, you know, the Samaritans. And so Jesus is purposefully poking his fellow countrymen, going, look, guys, it is not about race. It's not about tribe. Because what did we talk about last time that I shared? I talked about Satan's desire to divide us among tribes, among peoples, among uh, among classes, all these different things. That is the plan of Satan. And that's what he's going to do in the last days. And so people don't necessarily realize it, but there's this hatred, these, these feelings that arise in themselves. It's a very natural thing. And it ha it's happened back in Jesus' day, and it is common in our day. It's extremely common in our day. And we need to be aware of this dynamic, one, to protect ourselves, to watch ourselves from it, and to move past it. And so the reason I bring all of this up is because we are, um, you know, as you all could kind of get a feel for in the worship, we're starting to enter into the beautiful, wonderful season of the holidays. You can kind of feel it coming. You can smell it in the air. Well, here comes Bummer Joel. Um, not only are we entering the holiday season, but we're also entering the election season. Right now, here we are. It is November 2019. We're about to enter into a year of misery. Unless you're a weirdo and like it. The thing of it is, is like you move out to Missouri, again from Massachusetts, and all of a sudden you discover this thing. Every eight years, these bugs crawl out of the ground, and for three months they go, and I mean, like, is that, that's, that's, I'm making fun of the clip from Dumb and Dumber. Hey, do you guys want to hear the most annoying noise in the world? Um, but here's the thing is that once every eight years, cicadas, to me, is way less annoying than the next year of stuff that we have to listen to. So in the United States, every third, you know, fourth year, we have to put up with this. Now, we need to be aware of some of the ideas, some of the things that we're going to now enter into that are going to surround us. Um, now, it's a huge no-no to talk about politics uh, in church, and pastors avoid it because they don't want to lose half the congregation, but I'm a guest speaker, and so I can pretty much do whatever I want, say whatever I want, send an email to the church, don't send it to me. Um, 
and I hope I can navigate this properly, but I'm going to poke. I'm going to poke, and I'm, I, hopefully I'm going to be an equal opportunity poker. Um, and uh, the purpose of poking is to get us to think. And hopefully, even if we don't like it, it causes us to think, and hopefully the thinking and processing causes us to move into a healthier place. Now, I'm just going to be real upfront and say that uh, during the last election season, I voted for President Trump. And some people immediately will say, well, you're obviously not a Christian. Um, and other people will say, amen! Um, and this is, the, this is the new atmosphere. This is the new, our new reality. At that said, having voted for the current president, I am not, when it comes to politics, I am not a team player, which is to say I don't just stick with one team consistently because I am first and foremost a follower of Jesus. I'm not here to impress men. What does Paul say? If I'm here to impress men or to satisfy a particular political party, I'm no longer a servant of Christ. And uh, a couple years ago, I did. I had the chance to meet Vice President Pence, and I've been blessed because he says this over and over and over again. He says, I am a Christian first. I mean, he'll say this on the news. He'll say, I'm a Christian first. I'm a conservative second. I'm a Republican third. And Hillcrest, I hope, regardless as to where any of you individuals stand on the political spectrum, that we can all agree that we are to be followers of Jesus first, right? Now, that said, the reason I said that I voted for Trump is because I want my conservative credentials to be very clear. Um, I have disagreed with him on a handful of different things, but in particular, I've really been in strong disagreement with the past few weeks over the Kurdish issue, the withdrawing, alleged withdrawing of troops from the Syrian region, of uh, the, the Kurdish region of Syria, and basically given Turkey a green light to invade. Now, I'm not going to get into all of the details of why I stand with him. I will say this, though, just as a side note. Um, the, when ISIS swept across that whole region in 2014, it was disgusting, right? It was brutal. It was like genocide. And I said then, I said, Satan's overplaying his hand. And he always does. The Lord's always like a thousand steps ahead of Satan. And I said, what Satan is intending to do here is going to produce a good redemptive work if we watch and if we pay attention. And so what ISIS did was so demonic it turns so many people off that there is actually a revival in that part of the world right now where Muslims are becoming Christians, evangelicals. And in the Kurdish regions of Syria that we just gave Turkey permission to ethnically cleanse, because that's what they're doing. They're driving the Kurds out, which is ironic that the northern tribes of Israel were exiled there, and now Turkey's driving them out into other parts of the region. But it's the only part, I travel all over the Middle East, it's the only part of the world where there are open, now hear this, open convert churches. Churches that are comprised almost entirely of former Muslims that are not trying to practice their faith underground, but they're bold about the fact that we are former Muslims and we are meeting here in this city. And I met with um, Ilham Ahmed, who is essentially the president they're not officially a state, so, but she's essentially the president of the 
Kurdish regions of Syria. Um, and it's amazing that it's a woman, by the way. How often do you see women presidents in that part of the world? Um, and all of her advisors were all Christians. So we met in D.C. a few weeks ago. And all of these Christian advisors were like, but we're the only part of the whole Middle East that has convert churches, and we protect them. They were so proud of the fact that here's a part of the world where Muslims can become Christians openly and they don't have to hide, and the Muslim neighbors will protect them. That's amazing. I think that part of the world is worth allying ourselves with and protecting, at the very least, let's say this, it's worth not giving other people permission to invade them and wipe them out. Okay, I don't want to get into that too much. i got to wrap it up here. But um, the past couple years with this current administration, and we're about to step into it again, the primary two isms that have been utilized and trumpeted have been populism and nationalism. Nationalism is best summarized as this, America first. America first. Now, is that a godly principle or an ungodly principle? Don't answer. <laughs> the thing of it is, is I just want to say this, it's a spectrum. Now, let's break it down to the individual level. Is it godly or ungodly to say, take, a, take care of yourself and your family first? Yeah, you, you have to take care of your own health. You have to take care of your own spiritual health, physical health first. That's understandable. Otherwise, you can't take care of your family. You have to take care of your family. Otherwise, you can't minister to your neighbors. That is fully understood and justified. But when you move up the spectrum of me first, it very quickly becomes very unchristlike. And that's true on an individual level. It's true on a community level. And it is true on a national level. So as I have articulated my, my break from the team, you know, Team Trump, Team Concert, like, you know, you know, because as a minister on social media, you don't want to express your political opinions too much, but I've been so passionate about this Kurdish issue that I've said, this is wrong. And I've had a lot of people from my team, from the conservative team, express, how dare you deviate from the team? And I've had things expressed to me from Christians along these lines. We have our own problems to worry about. We have our own borders to worry about. We can't worry about other people. And so America first, at times, on the, on the negative end of the spectrum, the satanic end of the spectrum, actually becomes this, America only. And I think we can all agree that once it gets over there, it's fundamentally unbiblical. It's ungodly, and it's satanic. Now, how does a nation justify America only? Well, because they come through a season of feeling oppressed, of feeling downtrodden, of feeling, you know, conservatives, and, and forgive me, I'm just articulating one side, and I know there's, the conservatives feel as though the media has oppressed them, that culture is increasingly becoming ungodly, which it is, um, you know, on and on and on, and that they haven't been given a fair shake, and that, you know, the, the, the liberal side of the political party is just, we want to kill us, you know, this kind of thing. And so there's kind of this, like, anger that rises up and says, we are not going to take it anymore. Well, I want to just say this. The feeling in, in uh, Nazi Germany as the Nazi party rose up was, it was justified under the fact that, look, we've been oppressed for the past few decades. We've been crushed economically, and it's amazing what you can end up justifying 
When you start out with something that makes sense on the front end, take care of yourself first, Germany first. And next thing you know, you're justifying foreign invasions and actually leading people in cattle cars to gas chambers. And you know, I've, I've always looked at the Holocaust. Whenever I go to Jerusalem, I go to Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum, and I always stop at the part of the display that covers the righteous Gentiles. The righteous Gentiles are people who, they were not Jews, but they lay down their lives and they risk the lives of their own families to save Jews. But here's, here's what's so sad is that there's so few of them. I think we can all agree that the German church failed miserably to love their neighbors as themselves. I think we can agree that the majority of the German church, what they did when they saw their neighbors being dragged out of the house, they closed the curtains and they said, I need to take care of my own family. I can't be worrying about my neighbors, right? So it's amazing what you can justify or turn a blind eye to or not notice in the name of the, the, the reasonable side of self-preservation and taking care of yourselves and these kind of things. And um, so let me just say, in populism, it is an appeal to the more base nature of man. It's an appeal to the fear. It appeals to people's fears. It appeals to people's insecurities. And politicians are very good at doing that. But we need to be aware of the fact, and I say this, regardless as to which team you're on politically, we're about to step into it thick. Nationalism and just political division and partisanship, it has not been this heavy in a long time. It, it really is a lot worse now than it has been. And as we step into this season, it is so essential that we are aware of ideas, of cliches, of statements that we're going to hear our friends say, our neighbors say, that are not in keeping with what it means to follow Jesus. You can't love your neighbor as yourself while also saying, me first, me only. And there's, there's so much more that I could say, but guys, I personally want to be someone who's like Corey Ten Boom, you know, and her family that risk their family for their neighbors, despite the cost. And believe me, there's at times there's a cost. And and forgive me for comparing Nazism, because I'm not saying we're in that state here, but there's lessons to be learned from that period. And again, I say this as a conservative, and I'm assuming that probably there's a lot more conservatives in the room than there are on the other side politically. Um, and I know I'm throwing rocks that'll probably, you know, uh, that there'll be people that'll be offended on all sides. But we need to be aware of some of the principles that our own team, if you're on the conservative side, articulate that are incompatible with following Jesus. We want to be a community that moves way beyond any of the stains and the sins of this part of Johnson County, you know. Like, it's easy to look back at what happened in the 50s and go, we're way beyond that. Jesus expects us to walk past it, to live very differently. Not just a little bit differently, not 80% differently, completely different than that. And so when I say we need to repent, it's not an issue of all gathering up and crying and weeping and apologizing for what happened in the 50s when we, many of us were, you know, had no concept of any of this. What I mean in terms of repent is to live a life that's completely different than those things so that we can be a community that moves on into the future, that is a community that radically loves and understands and sees our neighbors and, um, and, and lives in a very counterculture way different from the rest of the world. Amen and amen? All right.
So, Father, uh, we thank you for these things. We believe you can do this in us. We, we, we do. We confess. You know, we're humans. We're weak. We're blind. We, we have our own glasses. We have our own lenses through which we view the world, and we want to see things the way you see them. We want to be a people that um, behave as your representatives, especially in the darkness of the political season. We want to shine brightly. We want to transcend ways of the world, the wisdom of the world. We want to transcend it. We want to walk in the wisdom that is from above. So we commit ourselves to you as a community, as individuals. We present ourselves before you, and we, we trust you to do this good work in us. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Hillcrest. 